Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is How to Be Anti-Fascist. Today we feature the radical work of Muriel Rukeyser, whose poetics treatise, The Life of Poetry, first published in 1949, can be called an anti-fascist manifesto. We struggle at times to place Rukeyser inside our understanding of politics and poetry as she herself struggled to not be placed. Like Thoreau, she did not wish to be regarded as a member of any incorporated society which she had not joined. But I think we can say that Rukeyser was a committed anti-fascist, which is not a party. It is a way. And the way of poetry, not just of poems, is the way of anti-fascism. We're listening to the Oscar Peterson trio perform Begone Dull Care, the music composed for an experimental short animation film from 1949, wherein Evelyn Lambert and Norman McLaren painted colors, shapes, and transformations directly onto their film strip. The result is a vivid interpretation in fluid lines and color of this jazz music. As I was thinking about the pieces I might bring together for today's episode, beyond the guest interview, beyond the musical interludes, I began looking for audio of Rukeyser reading from her work or commenting on poetry, talking about the life of poetry, the life of the poet. I went first to Penn Sound, and there found several pieces to use. One in particular I'll highlight right now. This is In Our Time. In our period, they say there is free speech. They say there is no penalty for poets. There is no penalty for writing poems. They say this. This is the penalty. This short poem is used as an epigraph by poet Charles Bernstein in an essay from 1994 called How Poetry Survives. He writes that, quote, the negative economy of poetry, that is, that poetry is published at a loss, is what makes it such a great asset for our culture in that it provides an alternative system evaluation to the bureaucratic professionalism of the academy and to the commercialism of the book industry and art world, not to mention the TV and movie industries, unquote. That bureaucratic professional is called The Middleman by Muriel Rukeyser. Bernstein goes on to write that much of publishing exists not for economic profit, but for cultural hegemony. Muriel Rukeyser wrote in many genres and forms, and her books have won awards and been ignored. She's been praised and scorned, often in the same breath, and even by friends. She dared to write unpoetically, being among the first to write a kind of documentary verse with her best-known poem sequence, The Book of the Dead. She transgressed by writing books about men and subjects that she had no right to, according to the male experts in those fields. She wrote books that still confound us as readers today, like her verse biography of Wendell Wilkie, One Life. If nothing else, Muriel Rukeyser was, and is, a challenge. To be sure, the criticism against her was often simply misogynist, and perhaps as much a response to her openly fluid sexuality. Our guest today is Eric Kinahan, an associate professor of English in the SUNY system at Albany, New York. He's currently at work editing The Usable Truth and Other Selected Prose, a collection that recovers some of Brukeyser's forgotten or suppressed shorter-form nonfiction, including her essays, journalism, activist writings, and lectures.
And now, how to be anti-fascist. Amira Rukeyser's The Life of Poetry on Interchange on WFHB. Not only is Rukeyser a poet of great strength and skill and imagination, she's also a novelist, she's also a biographer. If you sometimes, you'd have to probably make up another word for some of these books. Um, you know, One Life is the Wilkie bio, which is not really a bio. <laughs> she's an amazing creative force. There's also a lot that just has never seen the light of day, that it's remains unpublished and, you know, we're talking about nonfiction prose to plays to uh, film scripts, some films that were actually produced um, that she had written the scenarios for, uh, trying to cobble together for herself, um, you know, a livelihood out of her writing how much of a force she was with translation, the variety of, of forms in which she produced her own variety of interests. And in many ways, she was very um, mercurial. It's hard to pin her down. She really believed in sort of a, an idea of, of change and process and evolution that was personal, social, political. And so, of course, she wasn't going to subscribe to a particular kind of party line or any uh, sort of identifiable static form of political ideology. This is the scholar's problem and and shortcoming. We want our subjects to fit our own agendas. And she evades that, you know, at every turn. Um, and so how to appreciate that evasion? And how can she continue to speak to us today, living in this particular moment of neo-fascist uprisings and thinking about her as an anti-fascist? So those things are, you know, they're just constantly presenting, as you say, a face of a person interested in so many different things. But I assume trying to write a kind of biography of America through all these various forms and, for lack of a better word, maybe portraits of, I was going to say, of people in change, but of how we change too. There's just so much that just explodes around each thing she's trying to understand as well that makes her fascinating on any level. I mean, that's a really good way of thinking about that, of, of thinking of how she's trying to give us a sense of an evolving national history through portraits. That's a very useful and, and, and important way of thinking it through like her relationship to the individual and the personal, you know, to see the individual as an articulation of what's shared in common. There's a way in which she does sort of cherry pick particular kinds of individuals in order to get at an understanding of not just an American past, but also like an American future, you know, in order to understand like the direction where one might go or where a nation might go, one actually has to understand like a general kind of momentum trajectory and dynamic uh, that carries over from the past. And so of course she's charting these key figures who for her embody, you know, these sort of singular iterations of like what she sees as being like the most uh, desirable American potential or an American future. The people that she goes to are also totally idiosyncratic. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, her first biography is Willard Gibbs, the uh, 19th century, turn of the century um, theoretical physicist. She had also produced uh, One Life, her 1957 verse biography of Wendell Wilkie, the conservative uh, figure uh, Wendell Wilkie, who was a lawyer and businessman 
from where we're at now, it is even more curious uh, selection of subject because in many ways he was, for those who aren't familiar with Wilkie, he was what we might call uh, the repentant Trump of the 1940s, political opponent of FDR, who would later become an emissary, <laughs> emissary for world peace and uh, an initial iteration of global capitalism, a really complicated figure who probably wasn't as complicated as actually Kaiser makes him out to be. Um, it was published in 57. It's a book-long poem. And she takes the title and sees Wilkie as basically this articulation of an American ethos and an American mentality to understand like the best of America by turning to someone who was really like in many ways, like his political career and his law career had been marked by an opposition to uh, the very institutions and programs, including the New Deal and the WPA that Rue Kaiser was part of. So it's a strange choice of subject. Muriel Rukeyser reads a poem from a series in her experimental biography of Wendell Wilkie, One Life, a book of impressions, passages from political transcripts and newspapers, from Wilkie's own writings and the statements of others about him, and from Rukeyser's poems, so arranged that they add up to more than the mere reporting of fact. In your time, there have been those who spoke clearly for the moment of lightning. Were we all brave, but at different times? Even raped open and split, even anonymous, they spoke. They are not forgotten, but they are. In late summer, forgot, caught at cross-purposes, interrupted in an hour of purity, their lives careening along in the fierce cities, through atrocious poverties and magnificence, the unforgotten, the early gone forgot. Late daytime, and nothing left to hide but an eye endowed with the charred, guilty, gouged by war, the raging splendor. Despised like you, criminal in intent, sunburnt, in love and splendid, this heart, naked and knocking, going in clouds, smoke, and a cry of light, in pain, the voice of pain, the shadow of your cry. And never forget, you are magnificent beyond all colors. think about this kind of creation of the idea of America, right? So in the life of poetry, obviously, she goes to what have to be our standard authors uh, in terms of literature, Melville, Whitman, uh, she mentions Dickinson, but briefly. To understand anything of ourselves, we have to understand everything that might be possible to understand of human personality. Um, and it seems to me that that's partly what she's trying to figure out. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is How to Be Anti-Fascist and centers on the book The Life of Poetry by Muriel Rukeyser, which can be seen as an anti-fascist manifesto pitting poetry, the poetic as a way of thinking and feeling, against the constrictions of conformity and the profit motive, or in Rukeyser's term, the middlemen, reducing art to entertainment and capitalist propaganda. 
it's kind of a manifesto of, of life in general, how to perceive uh, the world around you, how to be imaginative uh, and not be constricted uh, by conformity. She addresses all these issues, even if she's confusing in the addressing, right? Even if she confuses us, even if we go to the Wilkie biography and make it through it and think, what a confusing thing, we still are confronting a problem. We still have to bring ourselves to that problem. And, and that's a part of what she's talking about also. She kind of forces you to, you know, walk straight into the fight. Part of the genius of it is to get at not just the contradiction, but also the confrontation. And so, I mean, those figures that you flagged, who we think of as being central to American literature, thinking about Whitman, thinking about Melville, thinking about Dickinson, these are figures who aren't really being studied or seen as um, the cornerstones of American literature in the 1940s. Right, right. You know, they begin to be championed by one of her friends, F.O. Matheson, a Harvard professor, literary critic, who wrote a big, fat, famous book called The American Renaissance. So one of the things that she ends up doing is, you know, going to these figures, literary figures and other figures from other fields and from politics, from anthropology, from, you know, just from deep sort of colonial history, if we're thinking about the Harriet book. I like how you characterize it, Doug, as making us sort of face something or see something. Uh, there is this degree of confrontation uh, that is really, I think, important to her approach to life, <laughs> as well as, as to writing. And the two are inseparable for her. Life and writing are, are virtually coterminous for her. You know, the question of what, what does that have to do with fascism? This is one of the things that I've, I've just been sort of cycling back to you and sort of working through is thinking about how much anti-fascism increasingly today is, is being thought through and discussed by activists and thinkers as, as, as forms of confrontation, as for, you know, the necessity of confrontation, that it's, it's not a, politics and it's in an ideological sense you know it's a position you know it's a being being able to recognize a threat and to identify it and to confront it one of the things that Ruth Kaiser does throughout her career but i think becomes really paradigmatic for her in the beginning of the 30s and then moving into the 40s is really being able to confront aspects of one's own self. In my work on the life of poetry, one of the things that I've been interested in is how much she draws on, in the book itself from 1949, she draws on the language of psychoanalysis. That wasn't there in the 19... And, and she began the book in 1940, and it was published in 49. And she it began as a series of lectures that she gave first at Vassar College, and then they were reprised um, in 1945 at the California Labor School. And then in 1946, she gave them at Columbia University, uh, offered as a course at the Extension School. And then in 1948, she gave the lectures again at the California Labor School, again, as courses. But it initially began as this four-night lecture series at Vassar. The only lectures that are extant in terms of the entirety of the series, are the 1940 lectures, which she had typed up as and, and had prepared to be published as a book, mm -hmm. uh, which she called Usable Truth. She shopped it around for about a year, and um, no one would touch it. Those lectures themselves don't really include all that much about sort of this language of confrontation of one's own self. She's really trying to not necessarily proselytize um, 
or to speak from a soapbox, but she really is sort of assuming a position of sort of a political rhetor, like try and talk <laughs> as, as a politician to these young women. Vassar at the time is a women's college. He delivered the lecture in October, the end of October 1940, and six weeks earlier, the first so-called peacetime draft had been uh, uh, passed. And so she's very conscious of the fact that she's speaking to, you know, young women rather than draft age men. And she's trying to speak on behalf of sort of a national positioning and saying, like, what kind of attitude the nation must take in relationship to the threats abroad, to think about the ways in which uh, one must work on uh, overcoming. And this is a theme that is repeated in the published version, The Life of Poetry. One must overcome fear and how fear uh, is, is overshadowing the nation and making uh, the nation unable to act. And the fear that Americans tend to have of poetry as the literary form, according to Rukeyser, is symptomatic of a general sort of fear that one has in relationship to life. From War and Poetry, published in the 1945 anthology, The War Poets. There is no way to speak of war as a subject for poetry. War enters all our lives, but even that horror is only a beginning. The war is in our poetry only so far as it is in our imaginations, as a meaning, as a relationship, or simply as a fact. It has not been in much of our poetry because the meanings of this war have been lost, and through this, the fashion in writing is aversion, wit, or easy mysticism and easy despair. We have been told by our governments, we have allowed our governments to tell us, to win the war first, and work out the meanings afterwards. This policy breeds more war and nothing else. When she uh, revised the lectures or as they evolved uh, over the course of nine years, and as she was preparing the book itself, this other vocabulary enters into her work where she is really thinking about the psychoanalytic dimensions, uh, the, the psychic life of readers and the ways in which poetry itself can become therapeutic individually therapeutic, culturally therapeutic, politically therapeutic. And that would allow for a form of social transformation to sort of move towards a more promising American future. That sense of psychoanalysis is really important because part of the confrontation for her is really confronting something in one's own self and recognize that fascism was not an external threat, but an internal threat. I mean, it's not to minimize the actual external threat, right. uh, uh, but this way in which like, the real danger actually lay in an undermining of, of one's own humanity. For me, a lot of Rukeyser's lessons, and we see this, I think, really articulated in the life of poetry is this way of sort of confronting one's own self, you know, and using, using art and the arts, but especially poetry as, as a mechanism, a tool in order to carry out this sort of therapeutic work to work on oneself. What a strange meadow lark to be singing all so sweetly in the park. It's time for a break. This is Carmen McRae singing Strange Meadowlark with the Dave Brubeck Quartet on the album Tonight Only, recorded in New York City on September 9, 1960. Coming up, the gatekeepers of literature and politics take aim at Muriel Rukeyser. Stay with us on Interchange. Was it love, Meadowlark? Were the songs you sang last summer crazy mad? Think of all you had. Quiet nest up in the clouds where the soft winds blow. 
Far from all the noisy crowds Where the earthbound go Your wings have brushed against the star Boundless were the skies You may have flown too high, too far Love is seldom wise Don't you see, Meadowlark Though you try your call Won't turn another lark in flight He has gone, Meadowlark You can sing your song Until the dawn brings light Sing with all your might Welcome back to Interchange Our show is How to Be Anti-Fascist About Muriel Rukeyser's Poetics Manifesto with guest Eric Keenahan. Perhaps Rukeyser was considered a strange meadowlark by the gatekeepers of literature. In this segment, we'll see how reactionary male critics measured her work and how even her so-called leftist friends attacked her for straying from orthodoxy and really for being a lesbian woman. The life of poetry is an answer to this worldview. Don't you see, meadowlark, though you try your car, won't turn another lark in flight. He has gone, meadowlark, you can sing your song until the dawn brings light. Sing with all your might, sing away the dark. Little meadowlark, meadowlark, meadowlark. Throughout the 1949 book, there's kind of a combat there with the guardians of academia or publishing uh, with new critics uh, at the time. The new that is really old, you know, the new that is reactionary and not new, right? It's not innovative, it's reactionary. Um, it's interesting that just just recently, um, the late Harold Bloom's last book has a, a little section in it where he writes, At any single time, there are a plethora of poets who achieve esteem and then vanish forever. How many among us, meaning receptive auditors, could now identify poets who seemed in my far-off youth to be of importance? And included on this list is Muriel Rukeyser, of whom Bloom says she had one or two good poems. It's interesting that in 2019, you know, Rukeyser once again stepped on by one of the male, I guess, like, like a legacy, a new critical legacy. So a guy who, you know, came out of the Ransom Tate, Penn Warren school, still you know, stepping all over. He includes Millet in there as well. Uh, so it's it's kind of amazing, like the, the continuity of that kind of guardianship. You know, it's important, I think, to just sort of call it what it is, the, the ways in which she, she is and had been, you know, throughout her career suppressed by varieties of gatekeepers. Part of it had to do with the fact that she was identified as a proletarian poet, but a lot of it, most of it had to do with the fact that she was a woman, a right. queer woman. Right. <laughs> so like, I mean, so that's, and that's the chauvinism of it is incredible. That I think is really important to, for us to, to remember. And, to, and it's really, it's really valuable to hear like how it still goes on. Um, but just before we were talking, before um, we began talking, I was looking at um, the letters of Kenneth Rexroth. Mm-hmm part of this sort of constellation of, of writers who I've been thinking about, who was a friend of and a champion of, of Rukeyser. But he also has really unpleasant things to say about her, <laughs> her mm. even though he championed her work. These are letters uh, that he had written to James Laughlin from New Directions. You know, whenever it's unpleasant, it is entirely cast in the most chauvinistic sexist language that I can't repeat. She got that sexist suppression from conservatives as well as, as from 
you know, progressives and sort of self-defined radicals. She was subject to this really, basically a 1940s version of trolling, the so-called Rukhazer and Berlio. Yeah, was that Partisan Review? In the, in the back pages of the Partisan Review yeah. by the editors, by Rob and Phillips and, and Schwartz. The Partisan Review has recently been digitized, like the entire run. And so, you know, I've, I've read about this Imbroglio for, you know, years. Critics refer to it, but you haven't been able to see, like, the letters, the, their initial op-ed, which is just this malicious, horrible, sexist attack on Rukeyser. I have been reading about it, but able to see it for the first time, to, to see it uh, in print and to see this, the, the substance of it. In a 2018 article on the gender politics of the life of poetry, Rowena Kennedy Epstein writes of the Rukeyser imbroglio, quote, Delmar Schwartz, writing anonymously as editor in the Partisan Review, penned a long sexist critique of Rukeyser entitled The Grandeur and Misery of a Poster Girl. In private, he wrote in an especially homophobic rant that she was a Helen who was a lesbian. The history of this attack has been amply covered, but particularly devastating critiques include she flew an airplane like an Auden character and said yes like Molly Bloom to the working class, an insidious transformation of a woman who authors into a woman who is authored by men. That happened in the end of 1943 into the beginning of 1944 over a series of, of a few issues of the Partisan Review. She had been attacked, then she had been defended by a friend and one of her exes, Rebecca Pitts, uh, and then later was subsequently defended by F.O. Matheson. What we get to see through this is the ways in which like her, a lot of the negative response uh, that she sort of attracted uh, or that just sort of was directed at her, a lot of it just had to do with the fact that she was a forceful and strong woman. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, what the initiating prompt was, if it was political or not. As you say already, not being true to a party line, that's the impetus, right? That was the impetus. I mean, she, the, the problem was is that she began to be sort of identi- either identified herself as or was identified by others as anti-fascist rather than as communist. You know, so mm-hmm. we have to remember like in, in, in 42, 43, 44, you know, the Partisan Review is the, you know, organ, publication organ of the Communist Party USA. She was attacked because of a piece she had uh, published in the New Republic in the summer of 43, a piece called uh, Words and Images, uh, where she lays out basically her own theorization of you know, the necessity of uh, propaganda posters that mm-hmm. were being published by the Office of War Information. She had worked for the Office of War Information, um, and she was working in the graphics division workshop of it. She had been recruited by uh, Archibald MacLeish to work for the OWI. She was very much part of the, the war effort. She began in late 42, I think, and she ended up resigning from the OWI in early May 1943. And she resigned because it had become infiltrated, the graphics workshop had become infiltrated by um, these Madison Avenue ad executives. The messaging became pro-war, and it wasn't that she was anti-war or pacifist by any means, but the messaging that began to be echoed in the propaganda posters was really about 
defeating the enemy. There was this increasing use of racist tropes, American values, or what she saw as being American values that should be defended, or what we might see as more sort of democratic values and not necessarily tied to a nation state. Mm -hmm. These democratic values of pluralism, of individualism, of freedom, these weren't presented as the primary reason why the U.S. was engaged in the war. And so when the messaging began to shift to a pro-war, pro-state demonizations of the enemy that seemed to erase shared humanity, that seemed to erase an emphasis upon democratic values, that seemed to erase the threat of fascism as being not locatable or, you know, or localizable into just like one entity or one nation state, but as, you know, sort of a, a sort of underlying threat that could sort of topple democracy itself. Right. She resigned from that post. So she published in uh, this piece in the New Republic, which had this sort of left of center sort of standing at the time called Words and Images, which was really about the ways in which the propaganda posters needed to move away from these racist and statist inflammatory messaging and move back towards something that was more future oriented and working toward sort of a democratic future, you know, that would be more humanizing and inclusive, that would include like black and brown people, (laughs) that wouldn't become just uh, the Madison Avenue set. And she really saw the the propaganda posters as a period just sort of echoing a logic of consumer capitalism, especially advertisement, visual language, as well as a sloganeering, rather than working in a way that she saw as actually more advantageous of actually making people stop and think, mm-hmm. of disconnecting the caption from the image, um, really creating a kind of uh, conf- different kind of confrontation, this time on the field of the page itself between the image and the, the language, a kind of disruption of habits of thought, especially those habits of thought that are cultivated by the war state, uh, in order to get audiences to sort of think for themselves and to be able to identify and come to a shared common foundation and belief. Her piece had been misread by the editors of the Partisan Review as being an apology for the nation state, like basically that she uh, had jumped on to, you know, FDR's bandwagon. They call her a poster girl, that she she really had just become a sellout, they call her at one point, and that she basically like had turned her back on leftists and was working in the service of the war state and was just trying to fan the flames of hysteria. And so when she was being defended by Rebecca Pitts and F.O. Matheson, they ended up talking about the ways in which she was not doing that, and that she was an anti-fascist, that the piece was critical that they were attacking her for, that words and images piece was actually critical, the direction that the Office of War Information had taken. <laughs> so those facts entirely were just ignored so that, that the editors could focus more upon this sort of unrelenting attack on her because she yeah, did not toe the party line. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is How to Be Anti-Fascist and centers on the book The Life of Poetry by Muriel Rukeyser, which can be seen as an anti-fascist manifesto pitting poetry, the poetic as a way of thinking and feeling, against the constrictions of conformity and the profit motive, or in Rukeyser's term, the middlemen, reducing art to entertainment and capitalist propaganda. So all that's really central 
and seems to me a major part of the life of poetry then. The book seems to me as much an answer to that imbroglio as, you know, any single article might be because, you know, she even talks in this book about sellouts. It seems to me much of the text could be a, res a response to that, uh, in particular to the fact that, you know, once propaganda becomes fascist in and of itself, right, to, to defeat fascism, you, you uh, apply fascist techniques. And, of course, she's going to stand against that. That's pretty fascinating. And, and, you know, why the book has, I think, the power it does and why it still can speak to us, because these are the same issues we continue to struggle with. Obviously, 70 years of advertising, you know, 70 years of the war state, 70 years of militarism, 70 years of, you know, big business, you know, 70 years of all that still confront us, right? How we still approach these things in, you know, cartoons of one one bad dude against another bad dude, instead of, as you say, you know, opening up some opportunities to, th to think better. <laughs> so the book is about that, right? The book is about imagination and thinking. One thing I did wanted to ask uh, before, before I forgot about it, because it also seemed important to me, were uh, these sort of influences behind these talks, Collingwood and Caldwell. Collingwood is an obvious influence in the life of poetry, as she names him, and then begins to talk about these things that he points out she leans heavily on them in her own ideas as well. Uh, and Caldwell, I never knew or heard of, but he seems an, a fascinating figure that I should have heard of. <laughs> so, so I'd like to hear a little bit about those two. You know, for all the ways in which she's really invested in reimagining of American history and American attitude, she draws heavily, quite heavily on different British thinkers of the period, particularly of the 30s, late 30s, including R.G. Collingwood, who was a pragmatist philosopher or a process philosopher whose major work is a book called The Principles of Art, which is a, a way of sort of imagining art as depending upon not a sense of sort of a static object that's sort of frozen in time, but the ways in which art itself is part of one's own life. It's sort of an extension of oneself. Art sort of evolves over time. And so those ideas of sort of a connection and sort of a personal connection, a lived connection, a felt connection to art really inform Rukeyser's own relationship specifically to poetry. But she also thought about this in other ways in relationship to photography, to film, to music, to theater. In the life of poetry, you know, she famously talks about the ways in which a poem is, is not just sort of a, a thing on a piece of paper, but it's instead an experience. And it's an experience that can be shared. Poetry for her is just a way of describing a series of relationships that one has to not just an artwork, but also to the artist who made it, as well as to other audiences of the same artwork. So she got a lot of those ideas from Collingwood, as well as from, from an American philosopher, Charles Sanders Peirce. She was really drawing on this body of thought of thinking about sort of how art is a living organism and therefore becomes an extension of both the artist as well as the audience who engages with the artwork. I think that the role of the poet meets the role of anybody else in the way in which we can understand, as Collingwood says, what it feels like to be a person thinking these things. That the poet can have, at this time, a great deal to do with the bringing to consciousness of the buried life of the emotions among us at this time, and of the belief in the moment, in all its 
meanings in all its randomness, in all its funniness, in the ways in which the roots are recognized of what we do and what we become. I think the kinds of meanings that exist in the words of poetry are shut away to a certain extent from us now, in which we have a time when the moment, the attempt to hold on to the moment is almost being made a last stand struggle. The attempt to think of time as a static succession of points and that the ways in which the poem living and moving in time, the shortest of arts, if you like, of those that live in time, can call upon the ideas of flow, of growth, of transformation in us. The language of this can be drawn from many different places. I know I, I go to the language of water, of embryology, of morphology in books like uh, Thompson's Growth and Form, to f make a vocabulary which seems to me to be almost lacking in present English, of process. And the idea of process, of transformation, of possibility, is, I think, very deep in the part that the poet plays in life. Although here it meets the part of anyone who is willing to be receptive to the creative and to make something of that re receptivity. I don't know really how these things can be split, Although I know that in the giving up of self during the writing of a poem, as in love, in bringing to birth, in any of the very deep places in our lives where self is more or less given up, that we do reach each other and that there is a way of sharing this kind of experience. And that seems to me to be the center of this function. an interesting sort of addendum to that uh, insofar as he was a, a Marxist British thinker of the 30s. Part of what I'm interested in sort of her connection to Caldwell is the ways in which she wrote about emotion as being very important to the artwork. And this is also part of what drew her to I.A. Richards. You know, whereas American new critics were saying like you had to have this objective relationship to an artwork that, stand, that stands alone and is, is transcendent of, of history and moments. Um, and one to, needs to have a scientific relationship to that uh, artwork as a reader, as a critic. I.A. Richards, in contrast, and Caldwell, in contrast, from different sort of points in the political spectrum, they were arguing for an emotional relationship to art, the degree to which uh, an audience had to have a subjective emotional investment in the artwork actually gave the artwork life. And so they both also believe in sort of the utility of art which is really important for Rukeyser. The lecture series where the life of poetry began, again, it was called The Usable Truth. That's based on people couldn't read Melville's handwriting. Right. And so Melville had written a famous letter to Hawthorne uh, where he talks about what had been interpreted for, at that point, several several decades as the phrase, the usable truth. The literature gives us the usable truth. But he was actually writing the visible truth. Right, right. Uh, so when Rukeyser invokes the usable truth and invoking uh, this misreading or misunderstanding of Melville, she was invested in the idea that art itself could be a tool for 
addressing and confronting sort of the nature of, of, of one's own environment, cultural environment, political environment, social environment. And so it was really part of the fabric of sort of an American cultural life and an individual's own life as well. I, I've come to think of her as a synthetic thinker, but a lot of what I'm interested in and sort of what I think actually good artwork and good criticism is invested in is kind of derivation, like drawing from different sources and synthesizing them into your own idiosyncratic way of seeing the world and articulating your experience of the world. But she really drew on like this whole plethora of sources um, from you know, total different kind of range, you know, in order to create this, this vision of, that was actually pretty uniquely her own. And yet also not uniquely her own. I neither smoke nor drink nor swear. My habits are sublime. And at the risk of seeming square, resist temptation all the time. It's time for another break. This is My One Bad Habit, another from Carmen McRae and Dave Brubeck. Off the 1960 recording, Tonight Only, a major thrust of Rukeyser's poetic work, breaking habits of thinking. Stay with us for more on how to be anti-fascist when Interchange returns on WFHB. And falling right out again My resolution Forget the past Don't fall too fast And make it last The dreams that mattered Have all been they're long since scattered, gone My grand illusion was all delusion My revolution is on To break that habit of falling in love With someone who doesn't I'm out to conquer So love beware No more despair In this love affair It's now or never My last endeavor Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest is Eric Keenahan. He's editing a book that will recover Muriel Rukeyser's forgotten or suppressed nonfiction to be called The Usable Truth. Tonight's show centers on Rukeyser's The Life of Poetry. In this final third of our show, we'll hear about the way the middlemen of profit and conformity dam up and redirect the power of art into entertainment culture, looking specifically at the medium of film. Just one little show And I'll start falling again Yeah I'll start falling again It's entirely uh, consistent that she's combating throughout this book the idea, I think, that Fitzgerald writes in Great Gatsby, right? The view from a single window is, you know, successful and simple, right? And and that's that's fascist in some sense, right? That's the, that's the expression of fascism. This book and what Rukeyser does throughout is to try to explode that view. And so even while you can be individual within that process, you're 
never alone. It's the relationship. It's the bonds we make between those things, between each other, um, between the reader and the writer. The writer become reader. The reader become writer. And that that too is is she's she's going to want to describe in some terms as science also. So the idea that new criticism is scientific because it puts a pin in the butterfly and tears it apart is exactly the wrong thing. That is, again, a single-view world. This is exactly what she's against and what the book is very clearly trying to say, especially as it attacks entertainment, uh, art art as entertainment or entertainment industries, especially when it attacks the film industry and Hollywood. It's the idea of conformity to this thing. Mostly these people are called middlemen. Now, that idea, like rather than you know, rely on the middleman who is going to warp the message, interfere with the message, disrupt the connection, you know, the middleman does that entirely for their own profit, whether it's in terms of, you know, a monetary profit or in terms of power. Right. You know, and this is this is something we haven't talked about, but I think is important to Rukeyser's understanding of how the political landscape had to change uh, during the 1940s at, with the rise of totalitarianism and fascism is, you know, this way in which we had to start thinking about power differently. So, you know, power is, is there. And if you have this middleman, they're, inter- <laughs> they're the dam, damming up the, the flow of power between those things that should, you know, those entities that should benefit from it, you know, the artwork, the audience member, the artist. Um, you know, if the middleman is just sort of standing in the way, that becomes a problem. That's a trope that had been part of her vocabulary as well since the 30s. There's a part of the Book of the Dead, one of the poems that constitutes that sequence, is uh, called Power. Um, but there's also the famous poem, The Dam. And The Dam has this moment in it where she includes a, a stock quote. You can't read it. Like, in this, it occurs in a poem that reads as poetry and almost sort of romantic. And then you have this stock quote, uh, which actually dams up interferes in this the ways in which capitalism inserts itself and prevents any kind of relationship that one might have to the language, to the emotion, to other people. The problem of advertisement and the problem of the middleman. The dam is safe, a scene of power. The dam is the father of the tunnel. This is the valley's work, the white, the shining. High, 111. Low, 61 and a quarter. Stock and dividend dollars. Union carbide, 320. Open, 67 and a quarter. High, 69 and a half. Low, 67 and a quarter. Last, 69 and a quarter. Net change plus two thirds. Closing bid sixty nine and a quarter. Ask sixty nine and an eighth. Sales thirty four hundred. The dam is used when the tunnel is used. The men and the water are never idle, have definitions. This is a perfect fluid, having no age nor hours, surviving scarless, unaltered, loving rest willing to run forever to find its peace in equal seas, in currents of still glass, effects of friction to fight and pass again, learning its power, conquering boundaries, able to rise blind in revolts of tide, broken and sacrificed to flow resumed, collecting eternally power, 
spender of power, torn, never can be killed. It knows its seasons, the waiting, the sudden. It changes. I was going to point, I think, specifically to Chapter 9 again as a, about Hollywood, which, you know, I think like so many people at the time, so many people wanted film to be this liberating possibility for a new kind of art and one that had just been, you know, already at that time taken over by the middlemen. Definitely by the 40s. I mean, the thing that you know, your listeners might not know is, is that Rukeyser herself was involved with film. In the 30s, for a period, she worked a lot with communist theater companies. She was involved with communist uh, journalist uh, publications of the Student Review based out of, out of New York. Uh, but she was also working as an editor for uh, different film projects, which were usually helmed by leftists. And so she was mostly a documentary editor. One of her documentary films that she wrote the scenario for, A Place to Live, uh, was produced in 1941, um, which is about the, it's about the Philadelphia Housing Authority and the ghetto in, in mm. Philly. As these walls go up, we begin to see the city as from the very first it was meant to be. Safe. Happy. Beautiful. Look, Mother, this is what I wanted to find. This lovely place, so easy to keep clean. It would take a weight off my heart. All the things I ever needed, so easy to have. It's warm here. You can use every room. I'd hurry home from school. So much space, all for us. Not in one room all the time. I couldn't get here fast enough. The whiteness of the walls and the beautiful light. But it's not so simple. There just isn't room for you here. Every step of the way is hard going. They say you ruin a good house. They say you look for other slums when you do move. They say they can't solve the problem, can't afford to experiment. They say they don't see what they can do. They say anyway you don't know what's good when you see it. They call you worthless people. Call you poison to any neighborhood. They say it's not for you. What is for him then? What can his life be like here? What can a woman make of herself and her family? What can a boy grow up to be? They say they can't fix it. They haven't the experience. All I know is we live here. These streets, they're what we know. Somebody always playing in the street. Somebody always sick at home. They can talk big and proud like the lessons in the school books about the city. But they let it fall to pieces just the same. We're live people in a place that's half dead. It isn't as though we wanted the whole world. All we want is a place to be in. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is How to Be Anti-Fascist and centers on the book The Life of Poetry by Muriel Rukeyser which can be seen as an anti-fascist manifesto pitting poetry, the poetic as a way of thinking and feeling, against the constrictions of conformity and the profit motive, or in Rukeyser's term, the middlemen, reducing art to entertainment and capitalist propaganda. So 
from early on in her career, she was really invested in, in film. And so when she writes about film in the life of poetry and compares poetry to film, she is working, she's working out of and speaking from like this, this place of deep personal and aesthetic knowledge and political knowledge. You know, like she's, she's involved with, you know, all these workshops <laughs> that are very much tied to the CPUSA or tied to other communist organizations. Um, and so she's working on these, these leftist films throughout her career. And so there's a whole other chapter that happens in 1945, you know, and I think, I don't know if it's also in part nine, uh, chapter nine of, of the life of poetry as well, when she's talking about theater, mm-hmm. she had written a play in 44 called The Middle of the Air, which is an anti-fascist melodrama. Her work on that project was also tying her to this leftist element in Hollywood. And she had deep personal connections to Hollywood studios. It wasn't as black and white, like, you know, that you have, you know, what we would now call sort of independent filmmaking and Hollywood. Like there was a lot of sort of crossover in the studio system in the 40s and up until probably, you know, around the time that this book is published around 49 and definitely with 50 with the the advent of McCarthyism. What she points to over and over again, why I think it's as useful now or even as um, revealing now as anything else, as as we confront years and years of, you know, schools that have chosen not to even think about art um, in any form, uh, where we confront years and years of television, sort of removing visual imagery as your own ability to imagine characters, people, you know, life, other scenes, you know, to conform to particular ideas. You know, these images are presented to conform to ideas. And, you know, what this does is say, you know, you got to, we've got to find a way to break those conformities. You know, and poetry is one way in which if you actually tried to spend time on a four-line poem, you might have to spend time looking at those words, hear, hearing those words, thinking what, what associations they make. You know, this is a part of the therapy, I suppose, and I didn't want to say it was necessarily therapeutic, but it's how we undo so much that has been done to our thinking. I mean, one of the things that Rekeiser says, I mean, I don't remember if she uses the word therapy explicitly in the life of poetry. She does say, like, the work of poetry is a work of consciousness, Mm -hmm. you know, and so there's this way of thinking about how imagination is part of that consciousness. Mm. We tend to think now in terms of our political language in terms of thinking about, you know, a particular kind of consciousness raising, which is a legacy of, of the 60s. Common parlance would be like, you know, being woke. You know, there's this way in which being woke, it, it's very important, but that's not what she means by consciousness um, or a kind of raising of consciousness. There's this way in which art sort of inspires us to think, you know, just to, to, to think differently, you know, to experience life, break the habits of perception. And this is where she is really invested in, you know, this is this idea of sort of breaking habits. This is very much part of a pragmatist, an American pragmatist philosophical, like John Dewey. And, and so that all, it's all, that all informs her in this. And she gets, you know, that's, you had mentioned uh, R.G. Collingwood before, that that all informs Collingwood's hmm. own uh, theories of art. My relationship to writers of the past really is a relationship. You know, how can they help us think about our position now, how can a writer like Rue Kaiser help us see things a little bit differently? And it has to do with how they can help us break these habits of mind that we have. You know, we now call them echo chambers, <laughs> yeah. you know, like how we get locked into particular narratives. And what's fascinating for me about a writer 
like Rue Kaiser, is that her own project is really invested in, explicitly invested in, that sense of attaching consciousness to these moments of awakening, which are about breaking and continually evolving. The very premise of her project, you know, can help us rethink, like, you know, our own situation today as, as political subjects, as activist citizens, you know, like, what does it mean to relate to others? Like, how can I relate differently? How can I see the world differently, feel it differently, experience it differently? She doesn't tell us how to, you know, like the content. She just tells us like the modality about juxtaposition, you know, and in, in, in the life of poetry, one of the motifs that is an extension of or continuation of the usable truth lectures is this modality of, of what she calls collision and linkage. She says, you know, poems work in these two ways. They like cause images to collide or they can link together unlike things. And so that, that dynamic of like collision and that dynamic of linkage, you know, this is how poetry operates for her, um, which is about sort of reshaping the subject, reshaping, you know, reshaping, giving the subject tools to sort of experience life on a whole new way. It's not about proselytizing and it's not about giving us a particular kind of ideology, but it's about giving us an art form that gives us a different way of thinking and feeling and sharing the world. That's our show. Here's a last song from Carmen McRae and Dave Brubeck. This is Take 5 from the album Take 5 Live. Won't you stop and take a little time out with me? Just take five. Stop your busy day and take the time out to see I'm alive. The Life of Poetry is currently in print and published by Wesleyan University Press. Eric Keenahan's forthcoming collection of Rue Kaiser's essays, The Usable Truth, will offer further insight into the thinking of this challenging and strong woman, the anti-fascist American writer Muriel Rukeyser, of whose work the poet Eileen Miles said it would be exhausting if it weren't so pleasurable. If you pick it up, you will read it. Audio clips of Muriel Rukeyser were taken from the Muriel Rukeyser page on Penn Sound, a project of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Panda